Welcome, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I am your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Classic Wrestling Memories, part of the family, including Geekville Radio and the Wrestling Brethren podcast. And once again, it's with a heavy heart that we do one of these shows because, uh, once again, we are talking about a great wrestler who has recently passed. And fortunately, in this case, this is not one of somebody who died way too young with a whole career ahead of them. And as you could tell from the sound clip at the beginning of the show, we are talking arguably, in my mind, the best big man who to ever step into a professional wrestling ring, with the possible exception of Andre the Giant. And we are talking about none other than Big Van Vader. And joining me once again, my usual co-host from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I have to agree with Andrax. This is a heavy heart. Uh, but I don't think any of us were shocked because, you know, Leon had been pretty open the last couple of years through social media about his health issues. It looked like he had kind of kicked out, but, uh, you know, unfortunately he didn't. But it, what a great career. And uh, I guess we're, we're going to have to just kind of sit back and, and take it all in and then talk about it for a little bit. That, that was the plan, Seth? Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess I will kick it off here. Big Van Vader, a.k.a. Leon White, passed away on June 18th, 2018. That's four days before the recording of this episode. And he was 63 years of age. And to start things at the beginning, because Vader is one of those people who didn't really set out in their youth to be a wrestler. He was born on May 14th, 1955 in Lidwood, California, which... Completely coincidentally, but it's kind of a fun coincidence, is the same California town that Weird Al Yankovic grew up in. Uh, I don't think there's anything more than a coincidence there. I just think it's kind of funny. But before getting into wrestling, he was a two-time All-American football player for the University of Colorado. And after college, he was drafted into the NFL by the Los Angeles Rams, where he was a center, and was actually part of the NFC Championship team that played in the Super Bowl, it would be Super Bowl fourteen in 1980, against the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. But shortly after that, he was forced to retire from the NFL due to injury. And it it is worth mentioning, I mean, just to be factual, I don't believe he actually played in the Super Bowl. He was just on the team. Uh, does that sound correct, Train? And uh, did I miss anything, at least as far as his childhood goes? Mm, you got most of it right. Um, he was born in Linwood, but he actually think when his younger years was actually raised in Compton, California. Yes, Compton, oh. as in South Central Los Angeles. Straight right out of Compton, huh? NWA, yeah. <laughs> right. Which he joked about, you know, they were like the only white family in his neighborhood. <laughs> he was His father was a retired U.S. Marine, I believe, and, and was a certified underwater welder. Uh, I know that we talked when we talked about Wahoo, we talked about how his father was a roughneck, you know, very manly, dangerous job. Underwater welding kind of goes into that as well, too. Um, I, I, my understanding is that his father helped to design and, and build some kind of new hydraulic lift or something for motors and made a pretty penny off that and was able to move the family to another part of Los Angeles. So his high school years were not nearly in, in such a repressed area. Because um, he went to Bell High School. They moved to Bell, which is another suburb of L.A. Um, and that, like you said, he did go to Colorado. He was a two-time All-American, played center. Um, which kind of makes him near and dear to me. Uh, in college, I played long snapper, which you know is the center on special teams. Um, 
My understanding is he did play in the Super Bowl. He did play in that Super Bowl. You're, you're incorrect in that. I think he. Okay. I don't know if he started, but I think he did have playing time in that game. Uh, the injury that finally retired him was he ruptured his patellar tendon. Uh, you know, in his knee. Uh, and we're talking, you know, the late 1970s. So knee reconstruction wasn't the same back then. That I mean, now, heck, they'll give you a knee better than the one you had before. You know, I mean, that was what made, you know, as a Chicago guy, you know, the miraculous recovery of Gale Sayers. No one had ever recovered mm-hmm. from a knee injury like Gale Sayers had before. And that was, you know, like 10 years prior to this. So, yeah, you know, knee injuries back then for a football player, that was the end of your career. That's simple, you know. Um, and... He was one of the most highly recruited uh, offensive linemen coming out of high school, out of Bell High School. I think, I mean, he had like scholarship offers from 40 major universities. So he had you know, all the powerhouses you think of, Oklahoma, Texas, Notre Dame, Southern Cal. In fact, I think it shocked a lot of people that he didn't go to Southern Cal or UCLA and that he chose to go to Colorado because he was an L.A. boy. Um, so he was legitimately strong. He was a three-star athlete in high school. Uh, he held some some like junior uh, powerlifting records, so he was just a freakishly athletic guy at a very young age. You know, I mean, just really strong, fast, and agile for a man his size. Now, as far as the football career goes, it was two years, and uh, center is, of course, and even I know this, and I'm not much of a football guy. That's the guy who starts out every play on the offensive line, and he's the guy who throws the ball back to the quarterback, and essentially. Uh, kind of mm-hmm. helps block the defensive line from getting to the quarterback, correct? Right. And the center, uh, especially in his era, was usually the smallest guy on the on the offensive line. That's funny when you think about Vader being the smallest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, But they also tend to be one of the most athletic. Even back then, even more so now, but even back then, your center was, was essentially the quarterback of the offensive line. When you come down and you, you put your hand on the ball to snap, the, the center is usually the, the same player who will call out the blocking schemes based on the, the formation of the defense. So it's his job before he snaps the ball, before the play starts, to kind of communicate with all the other four offensive linemen, or five if he's got a tight end on the line. Okay, you block him, you block him. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. there was, there's a cerebral side to playing center as well. That's about being big and strong. So, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, He's, he's not the quarterback, but he's probably the, the second most important guy on the offense for pre-snap stuff, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. So he had to end his NFL career only after two or three years uh, due to that injury. And it was a couple years later, 1984, 1985, that's when he began his pro career. And he actually got started in one of the major promotions for its time. He did not really spend time on the Indies. And the number of guys who did not do serious time on the Indies in those days were few and far between. You're talking basically guys the level of Hulk Hogan, uh, Lex Luger. I'm sure there's a few others, but guys that just had such an impressive look that a promoter is going to see this person and see money. Now, the name escapes me of, as uh, the person who trained him, but it was somebody who was in the Olympics and did a lot of training for Vern Gagne because that major promotion that I speak Brad, of is... Brad, Brad Ringan. Yes, yes, you are correct. Uh, but Vader actually, or then known as Baby Bull Leon White, he got his start in Vern Gagne's American Wrestling Association, uh, given that name, Baby Bull Leon White. He was a baby face, and really, I think, if I recall correctly, was undefeated. 
uh, certainly at least in singles competitions, and the only man to pin him, I shouldn't say the only man, but the first man to ever pin him in a one-on-one match for the AWA was the then AWA world champion, a man who we're going to bring up a lot in this show, and who, quite frankly, we could dedicate an entire show to, and that is Stan Hansen, because Vader got his first national exposure and first uh, runs in main events against Stan Hansen for the AWA World Championship. So, Train, I know you know more about his AWA run than I do, because that's really the extent of what I've seen. I've seen Mm -hmm. a couple of promos. I've seen him do some enhancement matches against uh, you know enhancement talent but I, that's really all I'd seen of his AWA right. run so uh, if you could elaborate a bit on his run for right. Vern yeah if you go back to his beginnings uh, because he played football at Colorado uh, which is in Boulder uh, which is you know a, an hour drive from Denver when his football career was over he settled back into Colorado instead of going back to Los Angeles and I believe he had a real estate business or sales or something because his degree was in business. Uh, and he was going to the gym and still working out. And somehow that was how he got connected to the wrestling business. Because if you, if you realize at that time, Denver was part of Burns territory. I know that seems weird because it was based out of Minneapolis, but there really was no territory running that part of the country. So Denver was a major market for Vern. And this mm-hmm. guy at the gym had suggested it. And he was the one that got him in contact with Brad. And then Brad trained him. And, and Brad... Ringens is one of those guys, I think, you got to remember, Vern was a guy who was, as, as an Olympian-level wrestler himself, loved guys that had legitimate amateur backgrounds, much, much, in, the, much in the vein of, of a Eddie Graham or a Bill Watts, you know, with their football and wrestling backgrounds. They wanted guys that were real football players, real, real uh, uh, wrestlers. And so his trainer for years for Vern was Billy Robinson. And then when Billy kind of stopped training, it was Brad Rinkins. He always had those guys that were legit shooters training. Uh, and you're right. He was brought in as a, as a monster babyface because Stan was running roughshod over the territory. And I think it's pretty obvious from the get-go that Stan, they were priming for him for a run with Stan Hansen. You know, Vern had kind of stepped out of the, the title picture. Bockwinkle, you know, was, was, was uh, you know, uh, I think he was, I think his tag team with Ray Stevens was already over at this point. That was more late seventies. So Bockwinkle wasn't really in the title picture. It was Stan and, you know, Stan's not going to work Nick. They're both, they're both heels anyways. Right. Mm-hmm. And they just needed to create somebody who was, could be seen as a viable threat to Stan Hansen, who at this point, you know, Stan had said was just starting to go to Japan at this point. But Stan was already established. It was about an eight or ten year veteran at that point, you know, and he was already established as a legitimate monster. He's six, what six seven, six eight, three hundred plus pounds. That lariat. He had, he broke Bruno's neck. He had you know the successful college and pro football. He was a legit badass. Stan was in the fans' eyes. So it was, I think that was what they saw in Leon was an opportunity for somebody that the fans could buy could be a threat to Stan Hansen. That's always an issue for, I think, for a promoter when you put the belt on a guy of that caliber. It's the reason why Andre never had the belt. It's the mm-hmm. reason why, you know, um, it's the reason why Undertaker never had long runs with the title. It's the reason why the Road Warriors were often not the tag team champions. Guys right. of that ilk, you can't put belts on them. How do you get them off of them without yeah, it, losing their, their mystique, right? It, yep. Eventually you have to beat them. Right, exactly. And, you know, Vader and Stan talked about um, the way Stan words it is funny that, you know, Leon was so green and it, it, 
Stan's Stan's stiff anyway. Stan will admit that he's stiff, and he's blind. We all know this, right? And mm-hmm. he's the he's the potato master. We all know that. <laughs> Stan doesn't shy away from. Me. Um, I think Stan has said, you know, that he thinks that maybe early in this, this part of, of Leon's career, there was a little bit of animosity on Leon's side because he was so green, he didn't understand why Stan was doing some of the things they were doing in their matches. I felt like he, maybe maybe even to the point where Leon thought he was taking liberties with him. It was just Stan's way of being the veteran, of kind of steering him towards the way the match needed, the matches needed to go. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and to get it to... And I can tell you from personal experience, that is a hard thing to understand when you're green. And it had to be especially hard for someone like Leon who was brought in, just ran roughshod over everybody, and was such a legitimate, great athlete, you know, and he knew this, it probably was a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow. But nonetheless, it got him on the national stage. And the fact that Stan still liked you, that, that speaks highly of him too, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it's not that dissimilar from some of the things that Bruno probably had to do to Stan early in Stan's career, and you know. <laughs> But Bruno was a little rough on Stan, and 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 of course Stan Bruno's neck getting broken was an accident. But that's I know it's hard for a lot of the current fans to understand this, and they think that anybody who's a veteran is just being an old curmudgeon. There is so much more to wrestling than the athleticism. There's so much more to it than that. Obviously, the athleticism is important, but you can't you can look at somebody like Leon White. You can come in and be a world, and he was a legitimate world-class athlete, it doesn't mean you understand all the nuances, and that only comes with time and experience. And so Stan was steering them that way. And if you look back on this guy's in his first year in the business, and he has someone like Stan Hansen to be that guy. Granted, Stan's a little stiff, but that's a pretty good mentor to learn under, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also when you take into effect that his rookie year was 1985 in wrestling period, Mm -hmm. that would have already made him 30 years old as a rookie, which... I think most people in the right. wrestling business would tell you that's probably too late to start. Much like athletics in general, it's yeah. good to start as early as you right. can. Right, because like, like I said earlier, he had, we knew his football career was over like in 1980. He was selling real estate for like five years before he got a business. So, you know, and, and it's something else you need to think about, too, on that, that realm of the AWA. And I don't think you can underscore how important this was for the rest of Vader's career. Look at a guy like Big Van Vader. It's obvious. To quote Jim Cornette talking about the big show, or talking about Dave Batista, look at the guy. He's not going to be throwing arm drags and drop kicks in the first match. A guy who looks like Vader is, is, is destined to be a main event guy. I don't think anybody can question that. Just the look alone in his side, he's going to be a main eventer. By yes. working with Stan Hansen in his first high profile, in his first year in the business, he not only learned how to work as a big man, which is different than working as a normal size guy like me or anybody else in the business, he learned how to work a main event style, which is different than a middle of the card or opening of the card style. So that experience probably served Vader for the rest of his career. I mean, he had all the tools already coming into the business. He just had that stuff I was talking about earlier that you can only learn through experience. He's learning it in his first year from a guy who knew how to do it. I think we can both agree, if anybody knew how to wrestle as a big man, anybody knew how to wrestle as a main eventer in that era, Stan Hansen is at the top of that list. Yes, absolutely agreed. I guess the best, more modern example one could give as far as how well Vader was able to adapt to this big money match style, essentially in his rookie year, would have been the giant in his first year in WCW, the big show. I mean, right out of the gate, he was essentially thrust into a main event, and quite frankly, in my opinion, now granted, I sometimes look 
to WCW with rose-colored glasses in hindsight, and when I really shouldn't, but you know, <laughs> somebody like the Big Show really held his own in his rookie year, and he didn't look like a rookie out there. And I think the, the same can be said for Vader in those days. And a lot of it, like because we talked before, wrestling is a dance. You know, it's who you're, who's your dancing partner? For the Giant, it was guys like Hulk Hogan. You know, for for Leon, it was Stan Hansen. Mm-hmm. Two guys, two big guys, Hogan and Hansen. Like I said earlier, knew how to work 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 as big men and knew how to work a main event style. And both of them drew a lot of money. Yes. So you can't ask for a better teacher. You know, I mean, they they could have put. The, I think the thing I'm trying to point out is, yes, you could have put. At that point, Vern could have put Leon with a smaller guy who was perceived as a main eventer and who was a more technical wrestler who probably could keep up more athletically with Leon. Because Stan wasn't nearly – Stan's a great athlete in his own right, but he's not the same kind of athlete that Leon is. So he could have easily put him in there with somebody like, say, a Nick Bockwinkel, right? Right. Or given the time, maybe somebody like a Kurt Hennig or a Rick Martell or somebody like right. that. Or, he, or, yeah, he could have put in there with Scott Hall because Scott Hall was green himself, right? Or Rick Martell. But the problem is, as great as Rick Martell and great as Kurt Henning and great as Nick Buck were, they don't know how to wrestle as a big man main eventer. They know how to wrestle as a technical main eventer. I think you understand the difference I'm trying to point out there. You know, Right. Yes. So I know a lot of wrestling purists would be like, oh, why didn't he have a, have a program with, with, with Kurt? Well, they were both baby faces was the problem. They were, well, then why didn't he have one with Martell or, or, or Bockwinkel? Because you need to learn how to wrestle as a big man. And Stan was the guy for that. So I've heard, the reason I bring that up is I've heard a lot of people in the past few days that I've talk to some other fans about it they, they they question that well why did they put him in there with stan you know and i'm like because stan was going to teach him how to draw money as a big man and boy he learned his lesson well as we'll see you know mm-hmm. all right moving on from the awa this would would have been vader's first world title run and this would have been the cwa uh, standing for catch mm-hmm. wrestling association around right 1986 87 and another big man you may see a pattern forming here legitimately one of the strongest men in wrestling and one of the biggest draws overseas, a man by the name of Otto Vons, he wrestled for, was the champion for, and also ran and booked the CWA. And Vader came there under the name, uh, it also had Bull uh, in the name, uh, Bull Power, I believe it was. Bull Power, Leon White. I thought it was Bull Payne. Either way, he came in, and unseated Otto Vons for the CWA World Championship uh, in Europe. And to give you an idea, Otto Vons held that title, I believe, for eight, maybe nine years. So right. do the math. That would be somebody like uh, well, John Cena might not be the, the best example, but somebody who held the title since 2009. I get it that the, the business is different now than it was, but somebody who effectively never lost for the better part of a decade, at least by pinfall, and this guy comes in and pins that champion and wins the title. I think he held that title, I want to say, three times. Now, my understanding mm-hmm. is, and this is coming from notes uh, Dave Meltzer had in his write-ups about Vader, that right. Otto Vaughn saw the potential in Vader, and uh, Otto's in-ring career was winding down because we're in the late 80s, early 90s, and he was going to bring up a guy by the name of Rambo, now, it was his stage name because, again, we're, we're in the 80s. Uh, everybody has an action hero name, it seems. And Rambo was going to be the new top babyface. So Vader beat Otto for the world title with the story being that eventually Rambo would be the guy that unseated him. Do, do I have that right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I would think that, and I, I don't know, I'm just speculating here, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm pretty sure that the move to Austria and Germany, which is where Catch Wrestling was, associ- was Association was based out of, uh, was facilitated by Vern and the AWA office because they had a working relationship with them. Like you pointed out, Otto had come over here to the States and won the AWA title. Now, what a lot of fans don't know is he essentially bought that title. I mean that. He essentially put yes. money into the, to the AWA where they, were, where they were struggling financially, and the trade-off of that was Vern was going to put his belt on him. It would mm-hmm. allow Otto to go back to Europe and legitimize himself because the AWA had such a strong rep even overseas. Um, I know that sounds horrible to a lot of wrestling fans, these wrestling purists, but it's a business, guys. You know, and and like you said, Otto was at the end of his career, but he had a monster run for eight or nine years as a champ, and people complain about that kind of stuff. And yes, it did destroy places like England with Big Daddy Shirley doing the same thing over there. Well, it's the same thing that Vince did with Bruno and and Hogan or Crockett's did with Flair. If a guy's drawing money, even if you're the guy who's drawing money, why would you take yourself off top? You know, why would you? But but it, it, once again, you're right. Otto at least understood that his perception in the fans' eyes. So having this young guy come in, beat him decisively, it sets up the perfect heel for this new baby face he's trying to get steam behind to conquer, you know? And once again, he's right, he said, he's right in there with a the big, because Otto was like a 300-pound dude, you know? Hmm. So he's right back into a main event title picture with a big guy. And Rambo, I think, is like 260, 270, so he wasn't a small guy, you know, uh, when he finally got to that part of the feud. But, I mean, it, it's, that was, you know, that area, I wrestled in Germany. I loved wrestling over there, but it, it, it's changed a lot from when I went to the 90s to what it was in the oh, late 70s to the late to the early 90s. I know uh, uh, Bradshaw, JBL, got, his, got some of his first exposure over there. William Regal worked some over there. They did the old carnival circuit uh, like they used to do, you know, here in the States back in the 30s and 40s. Uh, that was what they would do, and they were almost like gypsies. And I don't mean that in a derogatory term. They literally would have caravans that would travel around to these towns where they were, you know, Germany has a very harsh winter. And so in the summertime through the fall, they have a lot of county fairs and festivals and carnivals and stuff like that. That was what they would would play to. And catch had different rules than like we had here in America. It was a different style. Some of their matches had round system. They had point system, did a lot of tournaments. But you would essentially caravan around in these trailers and live in the town for a week while you performed a show every night in the town where the carnival was, wrestling somebody different every night. And then you'd move on, you pack up on Saturday or Sunday, and roll on down to the next town there in Germany or Austria. So it kind of, it kind of was a unique experience, and I think it also probably helped Vader out once again early in his career. He's learning a different style, how to work in front of a different type of crowd. Um, he's learning how to wrestle with guys he may not speak the same language with, um, which... I get asked that a lot. How did you handle Japan? How did you handle Puerto Rico? How did you handle Germany as a wrestler? Well, we may not speak the same language orally, but we speak wrestling. Does mm-hmm. that make any sense? Yes, yes, it does. I've heard Taz uh, on his show talk about going to another country, such as a Japan, and he doesn't know his opponents until he meets them that night. They yeah. don't speak the same yeah. language, but yet they can go out there and work 15 minutes because they each know who the baby face and who the heel is, and they can gauge the crowd for what to do next. Right. I mean, a headlock's a headlock, chop's a chop, a drop kick's a drop kick, a backdrop's a backdrop. You know, I tell kids when I'm, when, I'm, when, I, when I'm training them, oh, I didn't hear you call a spot. Well, I just whipped you off the ropes. There's only a few things you can do, you know? 
Either yeah. you're going to take a face bump, you're going to take a back bump, or you're going to take a flip bump. If I'm standing there with my arm cocked back, you're getting ready to take a back bump because I'm going to clothesline you. If I'm bending over, you're going to take a flip bump because I'm going to back drop you. Your only other option is to cut me off. And my suggestion to you, most of them is I wouldn't cut a vet off if I was a greenhorn. That's probably not smart unless they tell you to cut them off. So you may not want to take that back drop, but you didn't hear, and you didn't have time to tell him when he called it. But when he bends over, don't think you're going to be cute by kicking him in the chest or doing a sunset flip. You're just going to piss him off. Just take the damn backdrop, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> this, this, in fact, that might be the only way you learn to take a backdrop right. But that's the experience he's having early in his career, you know, learning how to communicate wrestling without actually having to talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I'd, you know. I don't want to uh, get too far off track, but we're, we're going to be mentioning uh, some names down the road here of, of vets, but you, you're talking about that essentially trying to stop the backdrop, and uh, as they say uh-huh. in, in the business, it's kind of going into business for yourself. Well, uh-huh. you know, if you do something like that, if you're lucky and you're working somebody like Bobby Eaton or somebody like that, and really nobody gets anything out of it, or you could be unlucky and you do that to somebody like Harley Race or Rick Rude, and you will definitely regret it. Yeah, personal story. We'll get back to Vader in a sec. I did not realize one of our former guests, if you remember from from the Wrestling Brother podcast, a few years ago we had on several guests that were going to be on the Christmas for Kids shows we have here in South Carolina. His name was Cruiser Lewis, one of my favorite people in the wrestling business. I was green, been wrestling about two years. Did not realize Cruiser didn't take backdrops. Just didn't know. He never said anything in the locker room, didn't say anything about it. I backed him into the ropes, whipped him in. I said, backdrop. I bent over. He cut me off. He kicked me so hard. <laughs> he cut me underneath my eye. <laughs> he, he wore these work boots that he would try to tape over the, the little hooks on his laces. Well, the tape had butt through, and that metal just hit me right underneath my eye. And, and I asked him in the locker room, well, what the hell was that for? Because I don't do backdrops. Okay. And I didn't argue because he was a veteran. Lesson learned. Next mm-hmm. time you wrestle Cruiser Lewis, don't call a backdrop. <laughs> yeah. You know, those are the kind of lessons you learn in wrestling is what I'm talking about, you know? <laughs> right. And I'm pretty sure back to the AWA, there were probably some times that he did that with Stan and what Stan was talking about. I had to kind of guide him back, you know? <laughs> That's what vets are supposed to do. I know that sounds so cruel to a lot of wrestling fans. Well, you're just, it's, it's not supposed to hurt each other. You're not hurting them. You're kind of giving them a wake up call, if that makes any sense. <laughs> right, right. But getting back to but, Vader, but back, back, yeah, back to Vader. Yeah, I, I think that uh, wasn't it. Was it while he was in Germany and Austria that he went to Mexico and won another world title, or was that uh, was that later on? I can't remember. I think that was around the same time. So now we're getting into the point where Leon White transitions from Baby Bull and Bull Power and all that to the name and look that we all knew and loved, and that is when he went to. New Japan to work for Antonio Inoki. That's when he was given the headgear or the mask. That's when he was given the uh, big headgear that that blew the steam. I think it was based off of uh, a superhero or anime character or something like that. And that's when he was christened Big Van Vader. Now, his debut in New Japan was in late 1987, December 27th, actually, 1987. And he came in, kind of a run-in after the main event, and wrestled Antonio Inoki, who was essentially like what Otto Vons was for the CWA and what Vern Gagne was for the AWA. Inoki 
owned, operated, and essentially booked New Japan at the time. Well, Vader comes in and he pins Antonio Inoki in under three minutes. And to give, again, the idea of the, the level that this was done, Antonio Inoki almost never lost a match cleanly. And he lost no. in under three minutes. So this is the rough equivalent of somebody the level of a Hulk Hogan or the level of a John Cena, to give a, a modern-day example, or possibly even Brock Lesnar, except for we all know Brock Lesnar doesn't own WWE. The big, <laughs> top-drawing guy gets his clock cleaned and pinned in three minutes by this debuting monster. And that was yep. just unheard of for Inoki to do that. And it really set the stage for Vader being this huge international force because here he had won the CWA title in Europe, and now he's gone to Japan and he's instantly thrust into the main event program with Antonio Inoki and that IWGP heavyweight championship. So, Train, what can you uh, add on to about that initial run in New Japan? Well, think about that. That, now, that means now... He's essentially two years into his career, and he has had feuds with three legends, Otto Vons, Stan Hansen, and now Anoki. And he's the world champion on two continents. The IWGP world title was one of the two world titles recognized as a world title for Japanese fans. The CWA title was, one of the, was the world title that the European fans recognized. So he's cur- concurrently, at the same time, the world champ for two of the largest promotions in the world on two different continents having beaten two legitimate legends in those areas. Think about that. That's amazing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in, and, and in the fashion of what he did it with Anoki is, I think Anoki was smart. Anoki, once again, like Otto, I think, realized towards the end of his entering career, uh, he needed to create somebody, and he saw money in Van Vader, Leon White. Um, big white guys have always gotten over in Japan, always, um, just have. That's why guys like Hogan and, and Andre were such big stars before him. Why Stan was such a big star over there. Why Bruiser Brody was such a big star over there. Uh, there hadn't been many average-sized wrestlers that are gaijin, you know, non-Japanese guys that have been big over there, except for, you know, the, before then, the Funks, Danny Hodge. But I think that their legitimate amateur backgrounds is probably as much of the reason they were they were popular in Japan. Dusty, but Dusty was a big guy, too. You know, that's who, what, 280? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it just it, it blows my mind. I mean... You don't think Antonio Noki didn't like doing jobs or didn't do them often? Ask Muhammad Ali. He can tell you all about that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's another story for another. We probably need to do a whole classic wrestling members on just that entire card and show and the craziness that it was. But I digress. Um, <laughs> yeah. So here he is. You know, he's, he's pretty much a star and a champion everywhere he's been except for his home country, the United States at this point, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, fast forward a couple months. Uh, this is now April of 1988, and Inoki is injured, and I believe had to surrender the title. And they did a one-night tournament, uh, they meaning New Japan, did a one-night tournament in April of 1988, and Vader did win that, that championship and win the title. Now, if you know at all the Japanese wrestling history, I'm going to name some three very huge names here. In that same tournament, Vader pinned Masahiro Chono, Tatsumi Fujinami, and Shinya Hasemoto. Two of those guys went on to become what Japan called the Three Musketeers. In other words, they were the top guys that essentially defined wrestling in Japan. Uh, And 
were basically the legends. Not not quite yet. I mean, I don't think they had quite hit their peak yet. But no. but Fujinami certainly was in his prime, and Fujinami's the only name out of there that that was not a uh, musketeer. But he was the equivalent of you know like a Hulk Hogan or a John Cena or somebody like that. He was one of the absolute top guys in the entire promotion. And all three of those guys he beat in, in one tournament. Exactly. I mean, at that point, Fujinami would be 1A, top babyface. Anoki was the top, and he would... It would be essentially Dusty Magnum from the old Crockett's or, you know, um, Brett Shawn in the mid-'90s WWE when they were baby, when they were both babyfaces. I think you get the idea, you know? That's where Fujinami stood. And like you said, Chono and Hashimoto were on their ascension to becoming, you know the biggest players in the company. Of course, the third musketeer was, was Kenji Muto. The great Muto is what we know him of over here. But um, I, I think Muto was over here at this point. The only reason he wasn't in that tournament, if I remember right. Doesn't that sound about right when he ordered for the Crockett at the time? Yeah, that sounds about right. He would have been approximately a, a year, maybe two, into the States. And this would have been about the time, I think, he would have been the TV champion uh, for Crockett because... Uh, feud, early feud, feud was staying. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I do remember seeing glimpses of the Muda Sting feud in the '80s over the TV title, and this was before Sting had his run with with Flair for the the main event right. spot, the world title. Yeah. So you know he's beaten two guys who would go on to become legends. One guy who was already an established legend. He's got two world titles on two different continents. Where does that lead him to next? That would lead him to. The States, because over the next couple of years, Vader did hold the IWGP title on three occasions. He actually was the first Gaijin to win the IWGP title, and to this day, he's the one that has had it the most uh, on three occasions. And he also, in that time, formed a tag team with another fellow Gaijin, Bam Bam Bigelow, and their name translated to Big, Bad, and Dangerous. And they won the IWGP tag titles around... 89, no, 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 it was a couple years later. This would have been the early 90s, I believe, so about... Like, like, nine, like 990, I think, is when they won it, but yeah, leave it to but, the Japanese to come up with just incredibly awesome names for tag teams. That's right up there with Miracle Violence Connection for an awesome tag team name, isn't it? <laughs> that's exactly the name I was going to bring up, yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, sadly, you know, Bam Bam's no longer with us either, but if there's anybody you could argue that was as athletic at that size as Leon White, Bam Bam might be the only other guy you could name, couldn't you? For what they could do airily, you know, off the top rope at their size. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think that's probably why they were put together as a tag team. Yeah, that's a scary, that's a scary thought, you know? Um, wow. I just, I just love that name, Big Bad Dangerous. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> but but it was uh, right before that, or during that time they were a tag team, he was, I mean, you know, Vader had become, we can see he's going back to Europe to defend that title. Like I said, they would kind of do seasonal things. He's in Japan. He's coming to the States to defend it. Some. He winds up in Mexico for one of the, the promotions there called the UWA, what Universal Wrestling Association, I believe, mm-hmm. which is not the, the big, the, the, two, the two big promotions down there, of course, are CMLL and, and, and AAA hadn't even started yet. So it was essentially the, the second big promotion down there and wound up winning their world title, too. Uh, and was it 1989, I believe, he won the UWA world title? Yes. And he would go on, he would defeat El Kanek, uh for that title. Now, El Kanek, I believe, and I, if I'm wrong, please, please forgive me, he's related to Alberto Del Rio somehow. I believe he's like his great uncle or something. Uh, but El Kanek, though he was a Mexican and he was a luchador, 
he did wear the mask like they did, but he didn't wrestle the, you know, air quote, lucha style that we think of in America. He was a big guy, 6'5", you know, 270 chiseled. So he wrestled more of a power style. So it probably wasn't the uh, styles clash you would think it would be. It's two big power wrestlers, you know, but he beat him. So now he's got three world titles at the same time on three different continents. Has anybody else ever done that before since? I don't believe so. Uh, and they were effectively, if they weren't at the same time, they were all within that year to 18-month span of time in, in the late right. 80s. Right. And so not yeah, that makes it even doubly impressive because he's now doing this all in the first five years of his career. You know, But, but with El Connect, once again, a big guy, wrestles a main event style. I'll go back to AWA, and boy, I think he took his lessons well from Stan Hansen, how to wrestle a main event style as a big man. You don't get put in these slots if you can't, you know? You just mm-hmm. don't. It's a business. The promoter's only going to put you in that slot if he thinks you can make money. And, and, and you brought up the look, which was really brought about by Anoki with the, with the, with the, you know, the, the metal helmet and the mask. And I think that was essential to part of what worked, too. It wasn't just his size and athleticism. He just looked intimidating and cool because of the gear. Don't you, don't you agree? Yes, absolutely. And there were other wrestlers of note that were considered for that role, I believe, according to right. notes from, from Dave Meltzer, Jim Helwig, who would go on to become the Ultimate Warrior. Ultimate Warrior, yeah. yeah. And uh, Sid Udy, who would go on to become Sid Vicious. He may have been wrestling as Sid Vicious at some point there, but both of those men were considered. I think at that time, I think Sid was still wrestling as Lord Humongous in Memphis. He was that green, you know, which is Lord Humongous was essentially a a knockoff of Jason Voorhees meets the dude with the hockey mask from the road warrior movie, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. You get the idea. You, you, yeah. you, you get the idea. But, but yeah, obviously all due respect to Sid and, and, and to Hellwig, they couldn't touch Leon athletic wise, you know? So, right. Right. Agreed. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, when you throw in the, the, like the reason I bring that up is because now he's going to Mexico and we all know the pageantry and visual aspect of Lucha Libre and Japan. So, I think that's part of the reason he got selected down there in, in Mexico to get that title. All the other things aside, he just looked the part of what they want down there. Do you follow what I'm saying when I say that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, the big, bad I'm, monster who is able mm-hmm. to just believably steamroll everybody. Right, and the pageantry of his look with the mask and the helmet and everything, that's going to get over in Mexico. You know? uh, I mean, even the most technically sound wrestlers in the world who don't say a lot, they have to be somewhat flamboyant. I mean, even in America, I mean, Bret Hart, how many other guys made, made the hot pink look tough? I can't think uh, of any yeah. of you. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's just, it, that's, and once again, I'm not, I don't want to get off of Vader, but it's something I bring up. We bring up all the time on Classic, no matter what the subject is. There is so much more that goes into the wrestling business than what a lot of fans consider. All they see is in-ring product or maybe a promo, and that's it, and they don't understand. There are so many nuances, and there's so many little things. And Vader had so many of those things. You, you can sit back as a fan and go, man, I love Van Vader. And you can't really put your finger on why you do. And I'm trying to tell you, this is part of the reason why, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all these, these, these little things that you don't, you don't, you're getting, okay. I'm going to go ahead and just say it. You get work, folks. You get worked. That's what we do. That's what wrestlers do. Promoters, bookers, and there's nothing wrong with it. Don't feel embarrassed. Don't feel, don't get upset when I call you a mark because you're getting work that way. That just means that we're doing our job. You know, that's all. Mm-hmm. Yes. So in 1990, 
Vader has won all these championships, and this is really what I consider. And there, there are other matches before this, but that I can't really comment on because I haven't seen them in, the, in their entirety. But this is the first match I'd like to comment on that is one of those matches that is kind of Vader's legacy. Like if you were to look at top matches by Big Van Vader, you have to mention and talk about this one. And that was a All Japan versus New Japan Super Show at the Tokyo Dome, still a pretty new building at this point. And one of the top matches was with Stan Hansen. You know, we said we were going to bring up Stan a couple times in this show, and here's another example. Now, Vader was the IWGP champion at this point, and Stan Hansen, I believe, was the All Japan Triple Crown champion at this point, right? Right. Right, he was. So let's put that in perspective, and we'll kind of work on that as we describe the match. In American standards, you're talking 1990. This would have been if Vince McMahon got together with Ted Turner and said, hey, let's run the Forum in L.A. or, you know, the Superdome in New Orleans and have a title versus title match with Hulk Hogan against Ric Flair. That's what it would have been. Mm -hmm. And you've also got to throw into consideration what I said earlier. Vader has now been established over this three-year run in Japan as a monster who would be the legitimate legend to get where he is and has been unstoppable in three years. And Stan Hansen is the established veteran who in the last 10 years has established his dominance as a gaijin in, 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 in the land of the rising sun. It's, it is the epitome of the immovable object meeting the irresistible force. Am I wrong in saying that? No, no, not at all. And the reason we bring up this match is because this has one of the most memorable moments in not just Japanese wrestling history, but I think wrestling overall. I'm not exaggerating that one bit, I, I believe. And that is the eye injury that happened to Vader early on. Now, uh, I can only see so much looking at it as a fan because I've never mm-hmm. taken a bump. I've never wrestled. So I don't know the psychology of the movement as well as, as you do. But what it looks like to me is early on in the match, Hansen had Vader in the corner and, and clubbed him. And shortly mm-hmm. after that, you see Vader take Hansen down to the mat with an arm lock. And you see Vader kind of tug at the eye hole of his mask and when they make it to their feet vader kind of rips off his own mask which was unheard of at the time because in japan i think he'd only wrestled with the mask on and that's when you see vader's right eye on an eyelid is completely swollen shut and hansen obviously inadvertently completely knocked vader's eyeball out of its socket and it's that is folks if you haven't seen this match that is as gruesome as it sounds his eyeball was literally knocked loose from his socket so uh, do i have that right where the injury might have happened or might might have happened before that yeah i've 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 watched the match a few times and i've analyzed it as an in-ring competitor i've also listened to stan and leon talk about it you know uh, multiple times in interviews and stuff because obviously Anytime you interviewed Leon White, that's going to be a question you're going to ask him. Did you start? To start out with, he was even injured before the match started because Inoki was so hell-bent on him wearing that big, huge mask we're talking about to the ring, the big helmet. you know. That, but, and mm-hmm. Vader was like, look, I've worked Stan before. I know his style. He's not going to let me wear that thing into the ring. He's going to hit me, and I'm going to get hurt. So if you go... And, and Anoki was pretty adamant you have to wear it because Anoki was the thing was the thing weighed like fifty pounds yeah and it and it cost 
an inordinate amount of money to, to have it built to begin with. And then it costs like hundreds of dollars every time they got the smoke stuff to come out because of the special effects involved. And, and Leon talked at length about hating that thing. I mean, he loved the look of it, but it was so heavy and all the things we're talking about. And half the time, the smoke didn't want to go off. And the thing he always talked about at length was, you know how hard it was to try to get through airports with that thing? Yeah. <laughs> you make, and it, we, we, you've just heard us talking for the last 20 minutes about how this guy is, is hopping on a flight plane and flying all over the world defending these titles. He was in a lot of airports, so I get it. So, you know, he did wear it to the ring, but if you go and watch the footage, you'll see he takes it off and puts it on his shoulder before he tries to get in the ring. And, 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 and he puts it back on because Antonio asked him to when he gets in the ring. And sure enough, like he thought, Stan blindsided him or pushed him. And his face rattled inside the helmet, and it broke his nose before the match even started because his nose smashed up <laughs> against the thing. <laughs> so before they even get started, you know, and I don't think Stan tatered him there watching that spot. It was just physics, you know. Stan just gave him a little work push, but it was enough to rattle, you know, that mask around. It's not a perfect form fit, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the match itself, Stan is, you know, blind as a bat uh, by his own admission. Uh, you've seen, if ever, I'm sure most of our fans have seen him with his legitimate Coke bottle bottom glasses on. Uh, Ted DiBiase has joked on many, many times. You want to know what the scariest thing you can see in a wrestling ring is? Looking across and seeing Stan Hansen, Stan Hansen squinting in his arm cock back to throw that lariat. Because you don't know <laughs> where it's coming. Uh, Stan has talked about it length. You know, it's like, look, I'm as blind as a bat. He goes, I just throw it out there. Uh, where it hits you, I don't know, and I'm sorry if it hits somewhere other than where I intend. <laughs> I mean, um, so I think it looked to me in the spot. The, the match was brutal. It was stiff. It had to be. It was both the guys' styles. It was what the fans expected, and it was a big show. So it was. It was. I, I think both the fans' expectations were for the match to be brutal and stiff like that, and both the guys, because of their pride and their style and their respect for one each other, for one another, agreed that that's what we're going to do. And from from the description both of them have given, and from what I can see, when he hit him, it wasn't like he hit him in the eye. It's he, essentially, I think. Uh, Stan's thumb kind of accidentally jabbed him in the like right underneath the eye, but it was with enough force it literally like popped his eyeball out like a, like an ice cream scoop. You follow what I'm saying? Like it went underneath mm-hmm. the eyeball in the eye socket itself. And Stan didn't know, and I don't think I don't think Leon knew right away either. But as soon as he realized he, something was when he got poked in the eye, I think Leon thought that he just his eye was watering up because we've all been poked in the eye before and our eyeball didn't pop out. Right, right, right. It just watered up. Which yeah. is why he grabbed Stan and, and took him down to the mat and put him in a hold to try to, you know, blink his eye to get it back together. And as time went on, you can kind of see where he's got he's got Stan's arm hooked in an arm bar with one arm. And he's playing with his eye with the other hand. That's when he realized, oh, crap, my eyeball has come out of socket. Right. And he right. essentially, the, the, go ahead. Were you going to say something? I think it's possible. Stuff? I think it's possible that his first initial thought might have been that thumb or that gouge or whatever. It might have mm-hmm. knocked the mat, the mask loose over his eye because he's. It looks like he's trying mm-hmm. to straighten the mask at first. So he might have thought that the match, the mask, uh, the mask got dislodged, and he just thought, okay, if I just uh, pull it the right way, I'll be able to see again. Right. If I adjust the mask, it'll, I'll be. And I think that was when he realized, oh crap. And what I think what had happened was the mask was basically holding the eyeball in place. And as he realized that. 
he was able to, and this is gross, so I, I apologize beforehand. For, I think he essentially took his own thumb and finger and scooped his eyeball back into the socket and then took his top eyelid and, like, literally wrapped it around the eye to hold it into place. That was what was holding his eyeball. That's why you see all that swelling when he finally gets the mask off, you know. And then they immediately go because he's, you know, Stan comes towards him and he kind of pushes Stan off and then he gets to the corner. And you can see that's about the time, even as blind as Stan is, Stan realizes, oh, crap, this is pretty serious, you know. Mm-hmm. And to Vader's credit, he, you know, he, he toughed it out and said, no, let's keep going. These fans paid to see what's to this, you know. And they wrestled for, what, another 20 minutes after that? 10, 15 minutes at least? Yeah, something like. Um, uh, about 15 minutes, I believe. And, and, and all, and like I said, an amazing example of his toughness, uh, his, his willingness to give of his body to the fans. Uh, to give them what he felt they deserved with their hard-earned money. And, and, and also respect the stand for continuing to wrestle the match and not hurt him any further. I mean, we just talked about at length how Stan could be a bit of a potato machine, and yet he didn't hurt him any, any worse, you know. He, you know. And they went on and they wrestled the match. And it ended in, it ended in, a, in, a, in a, it was a double count out or a double disqualification or something like that, which you kind of had to. You knew that, you knew that one one champion was not going to do the job for the other and i don't think quite frankly i've heard some modern day fans complain about this well there was no clean finish did you really go into a stan hansen vader match in 1990 to see a clean finish or does it see two behemoths beat the crap out of each other what were you really paying your money to see you know right i don't think any of those fans in, in, in the tokyo dome felt gypped they saw two monsters beat the crap out of each other and that's exactly what they paid for it was know? the epitome of a hoss fight mm-hmm now, interesting trivia on this one, and this is something that gets lost and all because of the eye injury. You do realize that match was the night before the Buster Douglas Michael uh, Mike Tyson match in the same building. The night before. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Well, it gets more amazing. The Vader, the Vader Stan Hansen match outdrew the Tyson Douglas match. Now, granted, remember Buster Douglas's defeat of Mike Tyson was one of the biggest upsets in in, in, in not just boxing but sports history. Nobody expected. I mean, that was the reason it was moved to Japan in the first place because they were having a hard time selling tickets in the states. You know, mm-hmm. Dyson had become so dominant at that point. You know, people were getting bored of watching him fight because they're all over in a, what a round or two. So, uh, but they outdrew them. Uh, and and I, <laughs> Stan Hansen, I, I heard him say in interviews, uh, they were they were doing the. You know, if you've watched any of New Japan, you know how they've done for years in Japanese wrestling. They have press conferences right after the matches to get that organic, natural, you know, reaction from the competitors. Yeah, it's one of the things I like and, about Japanese wrestling. Mm-hmm. So Stan's at his post-match, and he's answered all the questions about the eye injury and everything. And then Stan actually asked one of the, one of the, one of the reporters, so are you going to come to the Douglas Tyson fight here tomorrow? And the guy said, no. And he's like, why not? And he goes, because I can guarantee you there ain't nothing I'm gonna see, that you're going to see tomorrow night between the two of them that was anything harder than what we saw just <laughs> a few minutes ago. And many people have joked that if you compare the two matches that were back to back, you know, night at, one night after the other, the same building, the Vader Hanson match was probably stiffer and harder blows. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Tyson got knocked out and he got knocked out big time. I mean, he got he got put to sleep fast. He didn't knock Tyson's eyeball out, did he? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> I guess the proof's in the pudding. The proof's in the pudding. But I mean, that's something that gets lost a lot. That it was in the same building the night before the Tyson Douglas match. And once again, I agree. If I was, if you had to tell me, you can only watch one match from the current, you know, from Tokyo Dome from that year for the rest of your life. 
choose the two. I'm choosing Van, Van, Van Vader Hanson, Van Hanson. I'm not choosing Douglas Tyson. And it's more <laughs> historically significant. I, it really is. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, jump, I'm taking Hanson Vader every time. Well, somebody else also saw that match, as I'm sure a lot of tape traders back in the day did. And this was a gentleman by the name of Jim Ross, who was doing commentary for Crockett Promotions at the time. And I believe he had a big hand backstage even at that time. And it wasn't long after this match that Vader started making appearances stateside for WCW. And after his three IWGP title runs and after his tag title run with Bam Bam Bigelow, and I believe they lost it to the Steiners, I want to say, in another Tokyo Dome show that I think was a match, I don't know if it was co-promoted by WCW, but I know WCW had a working agreement with New Japan at the time. And they sure um, did. yeah, Muda would do matches and such, and they, they would be yeah. Sh- yeah, yeah, and they'd be shown on WCW Saturday Night or something to that effect. But this is really what leads to Vader uh, making his name stateside, and it really wasn't until '92 that he really started working over here regularly. And it, right. this is what leads us to what I keep saying again. Anybody who knows me knows how much I love early to mid '90s WCW. It's what led to one of my favorite feuds of all time. You know, Ric Flair, by this time, had left Crockett. Well, it was Turner by then, but had left uh, WCW and was having his run, his first run for the then WWF under Vince McMahon. And Bill Watts had been hired as executive vice president. He was essentially the promoter for WCW. And Jim Ross convinced Bill Watts to bring in Big Van Vader. And, what, of course, what do they do? Once they got him as a regular gig, they push him into main event status, and he has one of my favorite matches of all time in July 1992 against Sting. And this was for the WCW title, and Sting was in his second run. Technically, it was his first because uh, he had the NWA title before that, but that's, that's a discussion for another time between the NWA title and the WCW title. And... Big Van Vader, effectively, cleanly, because there wasn't any interference or anything like that involved in the in, in the finish, Vader cleanly beats the WCW world champion, Sting, and wins the WCW title and ho- goes on to have it, I want to say, three times over the next couple of years, combined reigns of 377 days. So he really was established as a monster in 92-93 right. and really had that run of terror, was the top heel in the entire company, had Harley Race as his manager, and thus one of my absolute favorite times in all of wrestling, 92-93 WCW. So uh, did I miss anything really as far as his WCW run there or anything you'd like to point out? No, I, I, I think some of the delay, obviously you brought up the fact that he had some commitments, prior commitments, you know, tours he had to fall out in Japan, which is part of the reason they were being used sporadically before Jim Ross convinced Bill Watts to bring him in full-time. I think some of the also the issue, too, or that might have happened soon after he came in full-time, had to do with the, the lawsuit that, that Disney, or not Disney, uh, Lucasfilms had over the use of the name Big Van Vader, which is why eventually the name was just shortened to Vader. Of course, you know, Darth Vader, and that's where, all, that's where the lawsuit came from. But I think that, I think Lucasfilms, even though it was, you know, big and, and global, and of course Star Wars is, a, is an international phenomenon, I don't think it really popped up on Lucasfilm's radar until he started wrestling more in the United States. And that's where some of that legal stuff came in. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, I I don't, does it matter? 
and, and, and the idea I might have putting Harley race with him, I thought was brilliant, you know, uh, besides obviously the guy can deliver in the ring. He looks the part. They did such a, an awesome job of building him up as a monster. heel. I, I, I dare say he's the last true monster heel that's ever been built up, built up in wrestling. There are, could be arguments for maybe Kane or undertaker, but I don't think theirs was even as effective as Van Vader's, mostly because Vince wouldn't go to the links that Bill Watts would. You know what I'm saying? As far as violence and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't been anybody since then. So we're talking, what, 20-plus years now? I don't think we've ever had a monster heel in North American wrestling like that initial run that Vader had in WCW. And, I mean, he hurt legitimately hurt Sting's ribs. He legitimately broke the back of, of, of an enhancement talent named Joe Thurman. Uh, they did the angle where he, he, he you know, he power bombed Mick Foley as Cactus Jack on the exposed concrete and gave him a legit concussion. Uh, later on in the run, of course, there would be the famous ear incident with Mick Foley. Uh, they just did such an essentially awesome job at creating him as a monster. And then, oh, by the way, his manager slash advisor and mouthpiece is one of the best promos of all time and another legitimate tough guy who all the fans, especially in this area where WCW was running mostly, knew was a seven times world champion that it's the Bobby Heenan effect. It's the, the, the quintessential rub. Don't you think I put mm-hmm. Harley with him? Yeah. Uh, one of the matches I watched and, and, and we were ready when we were studying up for, uh, you know, this tribute was the match that Cactus Jack had against him as his return match for his, you know, Cactus's revenge against, against Vader, um, uh, from the, and from the, you know, the concussion that I discussed just a little while ago. And, of course, I think we all could do another whole episode on, on the stupid angle, amnesia angle they did after that. That's just That was not the, the finest of WCW 92-93. I think you can agree with me on that, that particular angle. But anyway. <laughs> Absolutely correct. I think really the only thing of possible note that could come out of that is I believe the uh, then Terry Boatwright uh, was part of that angle on screen, I want to say. The woman who would eventually go on to be uh, Marlena Mark, uh, with, with right. Goldust and just just essentially Terry uh, during the Attitude Era. I believe she did some stuff right. on screen during that, and that's really... I think she might have. Literally might the have. only thing, other thing worth of note on that, because even I, as a <laughs> teenage Mark watching that, thought, this is stupid. The worst part to me was, and it's part of it's because I'm such a big fan of Mick Foley, uh, Mick Foley's probably my second favorite wrestler of all time after Ric Flair. They did the angle where he had amnesia and he couldn't remember his wife and kids. Well, they didn't even use his real wife. They hired an actress to play her. And the reasoning why was, for those of you that don't know, Mick Foley's wife is drop-dead gorgeous. She was a Wilhelmina International fashion model. I mean, she, you name the prettiest woman in wrestling. I don't care who you can say, you know, Sonny or Sable or Baby Doll or Liz or... I think she was pretty and all legitimately prettier than all of them. She was too pretty to be married to somebody like Cactus Jack. So they hired a, a and, I, and I'm not fat shaming anybody. They hired a little bit of a, of a, of a obese and dumpy looking actress to play his wife. That just, that upset me. You know, it's like, aren't you trying to portray all these wrestlers, even the crazy ones as like top flight athletes and don't top flight athletes always marry models. So why not use his hot wife? But anyways, I digress back to Vader. <laughs> <laughs> um, I watched the match from Halloween Havoc 93. So, you know, at this point, Cactus Jack's overcome the amnesia, remembers who he is. They've built up the feud, and they did it as an old-school feud. This is a great example to go back to our Heel 101 and Booking 101 episodes of how to build up the program. They took a legitimate injury, 
and forget the amnesia stuff. Once they got past that, Harley put up all these roadblocks that Mick had to get through to get to Vader. He had to be, uh, what was it, Quan the ninja to, to get his medicine bag back. And I mean, there were all these roadblocks that Mick had to get. Then when he finally got Vader, they got it under Vader's terms. It was the second year at Halloween Havoc. They had done the spin the wheel, make a deal, where what it was was a Wheel of Fortune type wheel that you span, spun. It had all these different kind of gimmick matches, whatever it landed on, that's what you had to do. They had tried it kind of unsuccessfully and crappily the year before with the coal miners glove match between Jake and Sting. This one, though, actually lived up to it. It landed on Texas Deathmatch. And for those that don't know what a Texas Deathmatch is, let me explain it real quick. It was called Texas Deathmatch because it was developed in the Amarillo Territory by Dory Funk Sr. And false count anywhere. There is no disqualification. There is no count outs. You fight until you pin your opponent. Once you get a three count, the bell rings, and there's a 30-second rest period. At the end of the 30-second rest period, the ref makes a 10 count. And if the guy cannot, cannot come back at the end of the 10 count, then the other guy's declared the winner. So it, 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 it's like very similar to what they would call a last man standing match today. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, that was exactly the comparison I was going to make, except I've seen last man standing matches that aren't falls count anywhere. This one was. Right, right. And it was the main event of the show, and Vader was the champion at the time, but the title wasn't on the line because this wasn't about titles. This was about a personal issue. And those two men beat the ever-living crap out of each other. It is one of the most brutal, most stiff matches I've ever seen on a major promotion in, in North America ever, in any time frame. Uh, only some of the stuff that happened in ECW and maybe a few of the hell in the cells. And more of that wasn't about brutality as much as it was about just big-time risky stunts. You know, this was actually guys just really hitting each other very, very hard <laughs> with, with, with their fists, their feet, and, and gimmicks. And both of them bled like crazy. Um, there was a lot of drama. Mick was over like crazy as a baby face. Vader was getting booed. And the finish had them uh, basically doing a double double down, which is what we call it in wrestling, where both guys are down. The ref starts to make the, ten, the aforementioned 10 count, and Harley pulls out a stun gun right as Mick makes it up before the 10's up, but the ref's back is turned because he's still counting towards Vader, and he zaps Mick in the leg with a stun gun, with those old-school you know, stun guns. Mm-hmm. Mick falls down, the ref turns down, He's down, and then Vader makes it back to his feet. The key point that I bring up in that is this. A lot of people will look at that and go, well, that was a lame finish. No, it wasn't. You know why? Because the heel cheated to win, even in a gimmick match. That's heel 101, isn't it? Yeah, the heel, yeah, that, the heel absolutely. The heel has to cheat, even, even in the fair fight. What do you always say? In the fair fight, the heel has to do what to win? He has to cheat. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 you know, that essentially, you know, made Mick Foley, I think, long before the hell in the cell bump because it's like a monster like Mick Foley or a monster like Vader who had beaten Sting and broke his ribs, who had injured and put Nikita Koloff out of wrestling, who had broken the back of, of, of Joe Thurman and, and retired him, had given a concussion to Mick Foley at this point. When he got him in a fair fight, he had to, that was Vader showing a lot of respect for Mick. You know, he didn't have to mm-hmm. do that. I mean, just, it gave, it, it gave, like you said, gave Mick the out. Right. And, but if you enjoy, like we said, a Hoth fight, uh, once again, like the eye poke ones with Hanson, it's not for the weak of heart. Go back and watch this on the network. It's the main event of, of Halloween Havoc 1993. You will never see a more brutal match. Don't go in thinking you're going to see the flips and, and the big bumps you see in Hell in the Cell. That's not what this match is about. It's about two big guys just hitting each other as hard as humanly possible without knocking each other out. I, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I enjoy matches like that. 
I, they're kind of my guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason why we call them hoss fights. And while it wasn't a hoss yep. fight, another match worth mentioning in that 93 run was again against Sting, and it was Super Bowl three of that that year. And as silly as the vignettes were, you know, making it look like some sort of <laughs> B-movie, uh, that match, again, was pretty brutal. I mean, it's probably one of the bloodiest matches Sting had been in, but that was a strap match. It was the... Uh, get your opponent with a strap and then you touch all four corners. So that obviously there was no pinfall, right. but uh, the, it was the same as the Indian strap match. We talked about Oahu a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. It's essentially yeah. the same match. Yeah. And the finish to that match I thought was pretty clever because sting was carrying Vader around and would touch one pad and then Vader would also touch it. And then right, repeat right that after. for, <laughs> for the other two turnbuckle pads and then vader was just able to top, uh, touch the fourth before sting did so he actually didn't just uh, simply beat sting by cheating it, technically he wasn't cheating and he didn't just hit hit sting with his finisher and win in a way the big man actually outsmarted sting and just went with the flow and got that final uh, turnbuckle touch in before sting did at least if i'm remembering that that match correctly Right, but it, but once again, it was a nefarious, heelish-type way to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, another match from that era that I, I watched, went back and watched, it, it is one of my favorite matches of all time, was one where he actually did the honors uh, when he when he dropped the belt to Ron Simmons. Uh, it wasn't a long match. It was, it, it was essentially could have been a main event on like a Raw nowadays, you know? Uh, but he put over Ron clean. Ron was, was, you know, he had that rocket strapped to him. And Ron was big enough and bad enough. You believed he could beat a guy like, like Vader. And, you know, he hit him out of nowhere with that power slam. And my understanding, that was Vader's call. That was how Vader wanted the match to end. It's simple. But when a guy looks like Ron Simmons and a guy looks like Van Vader, it's a pretty cool, effective-looking finish, in my opinion. you remember mm-hmm. the match I'm speaking of? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of an out-of-left-field type thing. I can't remember if it was a Saturday night or if it was just a, just a special event. But it was pretty much out of the blue that that Simmons won, and I believe, according to Dave Meltzer, that was the plan. Uh, uh, Bill Watts put the belt on Vader so he could put it on Ron Simmons, because Ron Simmons was, of course, a babyface, and you don't want to have a babyface beat your top babyface for the world title. And it was it was one of those things where I think it was you know it was the surprise factor, and it was to give Ron the rub from Vader because he was. It wasn't that, if I remember right. I think he was supposed to wrestle Sting, and it was when Sting legitimately got his ribs hurt by him. So the the setup was Bill Watts came out as, as the commissioner, and it just pulled. He put the top ten uh, top ten contenders' names in a hat and pulled them out in the mid ring, and Ron Simmons was the name he pulled out. Wasn't that how how the setup was? Yes, yes, that's exactly what happened. Uh, another one that that I can't remember the exact timing. It might have been 1992. Maybe this was. He had a, a, a world title defense on. I want to say it was Slamboree or maybe Beach Blast. I can't remember which one against Davey Boy Smith and that short run that Davey Boy had as a top baby face in WCW. Um, another match, two guys, you know, obviously Davey Boy's not as big as, as Vader, but you could believe because of his build that he could, you know, and it was a different style of match that him and Ron Simmons had because Davey Boy was every bit of athletic as, as Leon was. And there's a spot early in the match where Davey Boy did his delayed vertical suplex, which, of course, was a signature spot for Davey Boy. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you as a guy who liked to throw a lot of suplexes when he wrestled, delayed vertical suplex is much on the guy taking it as it is on the guy giving it. 
because you have to kind of like basically essentially do a handstand and balance yourself once he gets you up and it makes sure that you stay centered so he doesn't wobble and drop you funny. It's not only does it help him look good, it's self-preservation. You don't want him dropping you on your head. The fact that guy 450 pounds did that for Davy Boy was amazing because there, I would suggest going and finding this one on the network too. It's amazing that Davy Boy, and all due respect to Davy Boy, was strong enough to pick up a guy that big because you got to be strong to do it to begin with. And then Vader being able to stay up there for him, he held him up there for legitimately, what, 20, 30 seconds to the point where he turned four times and showed Vader while he's up in the vertical suplex position to every side of the crowd, all four sides of the ring, and then dropped them. It's just an am- to me, that spot is every bit as impressive as anything of these new high flyers do nowadays as far as just raw athleticism by the two guys in the ring. And I know that doesn't sound like, going, come on, crazy train, you're, you're, you're nuts. Take it for somebody who's been in the ring and understands the athleticism involved in that spot. That was an amazing display of athleticism by both Van Vader and Davey Boy Smith. But that's another one I would suggest looking at, too. Uh, do you remember the match I'm speaking of? Yes, absolutely. I believe it's Slamboree, I want to say 1993, uh, because it was... Okay, it's 93. I thought it was 92. Yeah, it, it, it very no, well right. may be. It was... Uh, but I, you know, I, yeah. you're right. It is ninety. It is ninety three. Because when I look back, I remember watching that live, and in ninety two, I was still on a mission for my church. It was one of the first pay per views I watched when I got home from my mission, which was February of ninety three. So you're right. It would, it would have been like spring of ninety three. And this was uh, before Hogan had jumped, and I want to say this was around the time, or maybe shortly after, Ric Flair had come back from working for Vince McMahon and came back to working for Ted Turner and WCW. And what this leads to, and you know, we could probably do an entire show just on this mid-90s WCW, but what it amounted to was Flair came back in real life to WCW and essentially became a booker or co-booker of the promotion with, with Dusty and maybe one or two other people. And I think Corny what, was helping out. The time. No, Corny was in Smokey at the time. That's right. Never mind. So Sullivan might have come in. That's what it is. Uh, but what this would have led to is Vader having this monster run in WCW. He beat Sting for the title. He won the title back from Ron Simmons and had held the title almost the entire calendar year of 1993. And it led to Starcade 1993. And really, I think it was a legit sellout uh, for its time because it was Ric Flair it was. stepping back into the ring. It was his first real in-ring program, I think, uh, since coming back. And it was Flair putting his career on the line against Big Van Vader for the WCW title. And like I said, sellout crowd, you know, go, go figure. Uh, right. Well, of course, on that sellout crowd. Where was this 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 pay per view emanating mm-hmm. from? That had a yes. lot to do with it too. Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. Ric Flair uh, gunning for the world title in Charlotte. Uh, gee, no wonder that sold out. Right. And it was, and, 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 and I'm not trying to downplay the sellout. I'm not, but for clarity's sake, it was Independence Arena, which was one of the smaller venues. They didn't run it at, 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 at the Hive, which was the original basketball arena built for the, the original Charlotte Hornets, which seated more. They they ran it at they ran it at the Independence Arena, which still seats probably between eight and ten thousand people. So it wasn't a small crowd, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I I remember right. I think it did okay on buy rates too, as far as the pay per view. So you know, yeah, yeah, much for that same reason. And that I think really was the last main event program that Vader had. Now this part I'm going from memory on. 
uh, just from mm-hmm. being a WCW fan at the time. Uh, sometime in 1994, uh, Vader, I want to say, wins the U.S. title. I believe he beats right. uh, well, Jim Duggan. Hold on before you hold on before you go, hold on before you go into that. Do you remember going into that that Flair match? It wasn't supposed to be Flair and Vader. It was supposed to be Sid and Vader because during the course of '93, they had built up Sid and Vader, calling themselves the Masters of the Power Bomb, as the top two heels in the promotion. Because Luger had left at this point and gone to WWF, who was the other top heel before Sid, mm-hmm. and they had you know Sid had had Colonel Rob Parker as his manager. Vader had his had Harley as his manager, and they were feuding with Davy Boy and Sting as the top baby faces. Well, that all led to uh, you know a split where Vader stayed the heel and Sid became the, the baby face, and then they were going to face each other. And I can't remember. I think this was around the time, if I'm correct. Wasn't this around the time that Sid got into the stabbing incident with Arn, and that's why he got gone? You are exactly right. Yes, that was the stabbing incident. And so, right, so that's why Flair stepped in, you know, to 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 feud with. And so the the dynamic, once again, I think you need to speak well to Vader's, you know, in ring abilities is that he's priming for a feud against a guy who's as big as him in a power match, and then has to change his his plans because Flair's a completely different kind of wrestler than Sid, you know, and. I mean, it, it, obviously, yeah, it's Ric Flair. Has anybody ever had a bad match with Ric Flair? No. <laughs> right, right. He's one of those guys, um, even me uh, approaching my mid-40s, if I got some solid training for six months, I could probably have a watchable match with Ric Flair. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to speak for, 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 you know, for Vader because he's no longer with us, but I bet he's probably happy it was Flair. <laughs> There's so much more he can do with them. Besides, besides the fact he can do a lot more power moves to him because Obviously, Flair's smaller than Sid, but it, it, it's a great match, and his stiffness shows through. I mean, in that match, you see he busts Flair's lip open. It's one of the more famous, you know, spots from that. He, he hit Flair with a clothesline coming off the second rope, and kind of got him under the chin. And Flair comes up, and his mouth is all bloody. He looks right at this, you son of a bitch. You know, <laughs> uh, a funny part of that of that of that match was. I don't think Flair and Vader had touched each other or much before the match to build up, you know, the, the, the suspense for it. And, of course, you know, Harley, Harley and Flair are good friends. Harley was the one that essentially made Flair 10 years earlier at, at Stark 883. And during that, I heard Flair talk about this. Vader was doing that Japanese style, what he had done for the last year and a half, two years in WCW to get over, which was being stiff as hell. And he was, you know, globbing the shit out of Flair. And Flair had just come back down from, you know, WWE cartoon land where everybody's light as a feather. And some of them look like they're light as a feather. And Flair's known for being a light worker. And, and you know, <laughs> Leon's knocking the crap out of him. And um, at one point he goes to the floor and Harley looked at me and said, kid, if you don't start hitting him back, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and it's just it, it kind of clicked with Flair. This is a Japanese guy. Even though he's an American, Vader always kind of had that Japanese mentality and style to his wrestling. And so Flair kind of remembers, oh, yeah, in Japan, if they hit you hard to test you, you got to hit them back. Flair said once he started laying them back into Vader, he kind of lightened up a little. So, you know, <laughs> Flair wasn't even afraid to test somebody like Flair, you know. Like, this is Rick Flair in his hometown. You're going to test him. That's, what does that tell you, you know? <laughs> right. And something else I'd like to mention about that match, um, and I don't mean this to be silly, I'm – meaning it because Flair was a babyface at, at, at this point and thus mm-hmm. isn't going to do some of the silly tactics that he would do as a heel. Flair mm-hmm. hits not once, not twice, but three times he's able to 
climb up to the top rope and actually hit his move. He wasn't caught in yeah. doing that slam off the top yep. because you don't you don't want to do that as a babyface. Yep. No, no, yeah, he came off three consecutive times with like a, a single sledgehammer shot to the to the head, you know, um, and and you know he, 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 Vader Vader bumped for him. He, it's a, that match is a, and I've shown it to trainees before. It's a great match in in a testament to psychology of how to wrestle a big man versus little man match. You know, Flair fought from underneath. He he finally got Vader down, but he had to chop him down both literally and figuratively to get him there. And once he got once he got him down, Vader was. Vader was was professional enough to continue to sell. I mean, the, the match ended with a, essentially Flair clipping his knee and then turning it into a roll up, not on purpose, you know. But Vader, if you notice, when he he's mad when he goes back to the to the locker room because he's lost the title, but he's still selling the leg. Those little nuances I'm talking about, you know. Nothing mm-hmm. more than I hate than the guy getting his leg worked on for for 20 minutes and putting a figure four, and then the you know, next thing you do is you whip into the ropes and he's running the ropes like there's no problem. Not, what? What? <laughs> Come on, mm-hmm. man. Psychology. And, and Vader was a great psychologist, and we know Flair was. So great match to watch if you want to understand psychology. That match was it, – it's how you wrestle a big man versus little man match. Just, it just is. I agree. Uh, another now, reason why that match is definitely worth watching, and it, it shows you the difference in crowd reaction between then and now because that crowd – just absolutely goes bonkers for every piece of offense that Flair does. You know, now there'd be some oh, yeah. sort of silly chant or something like that, but that crowd... Or, or a beach ball getting... Yeah. <laughs> but that crowd is genuinely louder, I think, than just about any televised WWE big event today. And that's not a knock on WWE. I'm just saying it's just a difference in the times in how crowds right. reacted in 1993 versus 2018. It's what I say all the time. Vader and Flair worked for the heat. They didn't work for the pop. They were going to get the pops. Flair knew he was going to put them in a figure four. Vader knew he was going to go for the moonsault. You know those are going to get pops. That's not important. That's just window dressing. It's the heat that makes the people remember the match. And I, and I hate to say this. We're still talking about this match, obviously because sadly Vader passed away. This match is 25 years old. Okay, and we're talking about 25 years later and little small details in the match. You think 25 years from now, somebody's going to remember, I hate to say it, Ricochet versus Will Osprey? Probably not. And that's not a knock on either one of those guys, a greater athlete than I ever hoped. You know, that is the difference between working for heat and working for the pop. I mean, how many throwaway matches don't you remember from ECW? And that was <laughs> only, you know, 20 years ago, not 25. There's, there's, there's all I can say about that, you know. Anyway, but I, let me ask before you go on to his, his U.S. title run in 94. At what time, and I, we have to bring it up because we are talking about Vader, uh, at what point during his WCW run was the infamous backstage fight with Paul Orndorff? That's actually what we are getting to in, in 94 because he did oh, okay. win. Oh, well, sorry to jump. I'm sorry to jump the gun. Go ahead. No, 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 no worries. It actually uh, puts everything nice into place with a nice little bow. Uh, 1994 comes along, and Hogan has now come to WCW, and with Hogan came, like, what seems to happen when Hogan gets hired in a lot of places, uh, people that... All his friends? Yes, are connected with Hogan. Uh, Jim Duggan comes in. Uh, uh, Brutus Beefcake comes in under a different name. I think he was just called Brother Brudai. John, John, yeah. John Tenta? Yes. Ming? Yes, him too, yeah. So in, and in, in the cases of a guy like Ming, that's a good thing. You know, the case of, of, of Ed Leslie, not so much. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I know I'm going to upset a lot of the newer fans, 
when you brought in Jim Duggan, that's not bad either. You and me have said it many times. If you want to know what Jim Duggan's all about, about, go back and watch the network and see the stuff from 85 in Mid-South. That's Jim Duggan. Agreed. Very, uh, and, highly, very highly underrated guy. Very highly underrated. Yes. And Vader does beat Jim Duggan for the U.S. title. And under the rules for WCW at the time, at least on screen, the U.S. champion was considered the number one contender to the world champion. And right. Hogan was the world champion. So we got what I thought was an absolute dream match at the time, Vader versus Hogan for the title. And obviously, if you know Hogan's history, you can guess how that feud turned out. And That don't Ho- work for me, brother. That's yeah. how that worked out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that don't work for me, brother. Yeah. And Hogan wound up retaining the title throughout that entire feud and went on to feud with the now turned heel flair. But around this time, uh, the decision was made. And again, this is going by, by memory. Uh, this isn't going by any recent research. But they had effectively turned Vader babyface after the round with Hogan. And he was going to have, I believe a run alongside Hogan against uh, Flair, Anderson, and I, I can't remember if it was a four, uh, reformed four horsemen, but... Pil- yeah, Pil- and, and Pillman. Yeah, I think yes. it was. Yeah, and this is where the infamous backstage altercation with Paul Lorndorf happened, and I'll let you tell the story because uh, you know more about it than I do, but it essentially <laughs> led to Vader, uh, long story short getting fired from WCW by Eric Bischoff. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I'm basing what I'm going to tell you on multiple sources. So take it for where the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I've heard Dutch Mantel tell this story. I've heard Tony Schiavone tell this. People that were backstage at the time, you know. Uh, I've heard uh, you know, Bischoff's take on it. heard Leon's take on it. heard Paul Orndorff's lack of take on it. Um, Brian Pillman talked about it, or at least, Secondhand, Austin's talked about what Pillman told me because at the time Austin, I think, was this is at the same time Austin was at home with the injury that wound up getting him fired by FedEx that he so famously talks about. And of course, Brian was his best friend, but Brian was still in the company at the time. And uh, I, I, it was a TV, and if you understand how TVs went back then, they aren't live like they are now. You, you know, they were they were uh, as a, as a talent, I can tell you, they were long, arduous days. You hate television. You got to get to the building early. You got to sometimes wrestle three or four matches because they're essentially squash matches. You, you're going to have to stick around after or before the show to cut promos. And it was Vader and, and Harley's time to cut promos. And Paul Orndorff was beginning to have the issues with that, um, you know, the atrophy he had in his one arm that made that one arm smaller than the other. So he had been transitioned into a position as a road agent, like what Arn Anderson and Michael Hayes and those, you know, road dog do now for, for Dutch Vince. that kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's the old, retired veteran wrestler whose job it is to relay information to the talent uh, from the creative and booking committee on what they want in their matches and promos. Mm-hmm. Um, Vader was tired. Uh, you have to understand Vader was very frustrated at this point because of what we just mentioned. How you know, every, He saw, I think Vader saw the same thing that all of us fans did. Him and Hogan was a money, was a money feud that at some point Vader should have got a win, you know, and, and Hogan should have had to chase him. But Hogan kept his, I don't work for me, brother. And the rumors are, and I can't substantiate these one way or the other, but it wouldn't surprise me, Hogan was known for being light. And, uh, I mean, Hogan could handle the stiff stuff. He was a star in Japan. But he had been working that American style for so long, he didn't want to work somebody as stiff as Vader. You know? Um, he just didn't. I'm not saying I could blame him. but uh, <laughs> and, and so I think Bischoff, 
Bischoff's idea was to put, because remember, this is about the time Bischoff took over, too. Bischoff's idea was to put him with Hogan and do the baby face turn that you're talking about as a way, because he, he still saw money in Vader. You know, and it was one of those, if you can't beat him, join him type things. I think Bischoff was still trying to get some pr- productivity and, and monetary value out of Vader uh, with Hogan. And that's just the, the second best thing he could do if, they, if Hogan was going to balk on feud with, you know? Right. So he's already frustrated about all this crap because he doesn't want to be a babyface. Vader was, let's be honest, Vader was better heel. He was not a good babyface. So he's frustrated about that. He's frustrated about the, his push. He's frustrated about Hogan not working with him. He's also, by his own admission, having starting to have problems with drinking and, and the road life, and, and he's having problems at home with his wife that's affecting, and his young son. So, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in his life personally and professionally. And then he's at one of these long days where you don't want to hear anything. There was a miscommunication or misunderstanding about, about where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there, you know, and, and, and to cut this promo. And when he showed up, you know, Paul, who was old school, kind of spoke his words. Vader was not in a good place mentally at the time. Um, probably, I don't know if he said the wrong thing. He probably said it in the wrong way. I don't know who threw the first punch, but he got his butt handed to him. Um, contrary to popular belief, which has been perpetuated by Steve Austin, he was not wearing his, Paul Orndorff was not wearing a shower shoe. Okay. That's, that's the big rumor is because that was, I mean, Brian calls up Steve and tells him, Hey kid, he whooped his ass and he was wearing shower shoes. That didn't happen. Tony Schiavone has said multiple times on his podcast, it happened right at his feet because it happened right there where they did the promos. Paul Orndorff was wearing like tennis shoes, pair of khakis and a, and a golf shirt. What you would expect a road agent to wear business casual. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, it was over quick. It wasn't really a fight fight. It wasn't like Paul kicked his ass, like, you know, kicked his ass, but it was obvious Paul had got the better of him. Does that make sense? You know? Yes. I think that was the early days. You got to look, this was, you know, prodigy chat and AOL online. This is the early days of, 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 of the increase in, uh, the smart fans and, uh, internet and, um, newsletters. Hotlines, yeah. Right. For a guy whose whole career was built on being a legit badass, for God's sakes, he had his eye poked out in the match, and he popped it back in and finished the match. It wasn't like it was unwarranted that he was a legit badass. But to have your butt handed to you in a backstage legitimate brawl by a guy who is older than you and has, is recovering from an injury himself doesn't bode well. And in my opinion, that was kind of the start of the decline for Vader. And then couple it with, like I just said, there were a lot of issues going on in his own personal life and backstage professionally. And then there's also the other thing that people don't think about. Vader had been wrestling for almost 10 years at this point and doing an extremely high-risk style at a size that's not meant to do it at. So I'm sure physically he was hurting as well. You know, His knees probably were starting to go bad. His hips were going bad. There's a lot of extenuating circumstances and factors that go into that fight, in my opinion. So I think some people focus and, and fixate on that more than they should especially at the end of the day all the other things i threw in paul orndorf was legitimately known to be one of the toughest men legitimately ever in the sport paul orndorf was legitimately on that list of the danny hodges luces uh, dick slater wahoo mcdaniel ming harley race those kind of guys is the same list that paul orndorf belongs on and always has so it's not like I guess what I'm saying is I'm not taking anything away from the toughness of Leon. I think the circumstances have been different. Maybe it wouldn't have ended the way it had, but if it had, it wouldn't surprise me. But that doesn't mean just Joe Schmo on the street should walk up and challenge Leon White. 
he'd still wipe the floor with them. It's like, you know, it's, it, it, I guess you get the point I'm trying to say, don't you? It's like, I mean, yeah, it's not absolutely. saying he wasn't a badass. It's just that Paul Anders is a little bit more of a badass. But they're both badasses, and they're neither. I mean, look, George South trained my tag team wrestler, tagged my tag team partner. George South, by no stretch of the imagination, looks like much of anything. All of you have seen him, and he, and he was a jobber for his entire career. I can tell you from personal experience, and I would swear on a stack of Bibles, the average guy on the street does not want to cross George South, okay? I'm just mm-hmm. telling you that right now. George would avoid the fight all he could because he's a born-again Christian, and that's who he is. But if it came to blows, George would clean the floor up with you, and he's almost 60. End of story. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be braggadocious. Guys from his era, from Vader's era, from my era, you didn't make it in the business more than two years if you were to have some toughness to you, especially considering every time we would go somewhere, we got, well, that wrestling's fake. You know, there, I've been in a lot of fights, and I guarantee you Paul and Leon have been in a lot of fights over the validity and veracity of what professional wrestling is. Just, I guess the, the, the moral of the story is don't think because, because a legit badass beat another legit badass's ass that any of us are the guy, ones you want. We're not the ones you want to test. I guess that's the moral of the story. But I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. I'm sorry. So Vader gets fired uh, from WCW, and he goes back to Japan. And I think he did return briefly to New Japan, but what he probably was known for the most in this stint in the mid-90s in Japan was the promotion uh, UWF International, which was Uh a wrestling promotion, was a promotion that had worked fights, but everybody that was in that promotion could legit shoot. Uh, and mm-hmm. he went on to win the title in that promotion as well. Right. And, and you know, they, they did have some shoot matches there, but most of them were what we would call a work shoot now. In other words, they were worked matches, but they were told the guys to work stiff on purpose, and there wasn't any high spots. It was all in a UFC match, I guess is the best way to put it, you know? And though they weren't throwing punches to each other's heads like you would see in a UFC fight, the, the forearms, the kicks, the chops were extremely stiff. They were not pulling them. They were making contact, you know? Mm-hmm. And I believe he wasn't the only American working there. I mean, other guys in UFW, I think Boss Rutten was one of their guys, and Nobuhiko Takata was one of their guys. Weren't Frank and Ken Shamrock both uh, guys, I think, worked in UF, UW, UWFI? I think that may be the case. Uh, it certainly would have been around the right time. Uh, because this was right about the time shortly before UFC had started. And, yeah, so guys like uh, Dan Severn or, yeah. Shamrock or or, or the the Gracies, those kind of people, yeah. I I think I've often wondered about this this part in, in Vader's career, and I've never been able to get verification from anybody one way or the other. I think it was twofold why he went to UWFI, because I'm not sure if Vince had come calling yet, or if he had, maybe he didn't like the money. But like we said, he's kind of done with WCW. Uh, I don't think he could go back to New Japan because of the political machinations of the working deal that WCW and New Japan had. And I think All Japan was kind of out of the question, too, because All Japan, first off, didn't need him. The time we're talking was probably the hottest time for All Japan. We're talking, you know, the days of Kenta Kabashi and Mitsuhiro Misawa and, and Kawada and those guys. I mean, that was about their hottest run ever, you know. So they didn't need him. Plus, I think, once again, politics, I don't think Baba would have been that that high on coming or bringing in a, a guy that was essentially, in the eyes of the Japanese fan, a New Japan guy. And I think you combine that with UWFI being this work shoot, presenting everything as legit, 
having lost this fight that's kind of leaked to the public backstage, when you throw in all those factors, that's probably why he went to UWSI, you know, to kind of reclaim his toughness, his mantle in the fans' eyes as a tough guy, and he didn't really have anywhere else to go, you know? So mm-hmm. I think all those factors. I mean, you follow where I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying when I say that? I mean, it seems logical to me. I, cause I'm not, this is all speculation on my part. Right, right, because Japan, he was a legit huge force in Japan, as we just discussed. Right. So it, it just makes sense to go back there. But after mm-hmm. his stint with UWFI, that is when Vince McMahon starts calling, and the aforementioned Jim Ross was now working talent relations for Vince. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's basically Jim Ross that gets Vader a job, this time working for Vince McMahon. And, and I remember this clear as day when it happened, because I was working in uh, the video arcade at the time and had a lot of friends who were wrestling fans. Vader got a very much hyped debut at the 1996 Royal Rumble to the point where just about all the on-screen non-wrestling personas such as Vince or uh, people that did commentary were saying, ah, Vader's going to win the Rumble. And he, he, he did not, but he had a very memorable showing and he was supposed to have a main event run Uh, and basically unseat the then WWF champion Shawn Michaels. Now, to put it into perspective, this is uh, late 95, early 96 to mid-96. Vader is hired by Vince McMahon for the first time and put in a high-profile program at the age of 40. Usually guys working for Vince at the age of 40, they've at least had one stint before or... They're finally right. getting that big run after uh, paying their dues and being in the mid-card for, for 10 years. So he gets a high-profile feud or, or right out of the gate. Or, 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 or you're Harley Race at the end of his career. Right. <laughs> but Harley's in a kind of a class by himself, isn't he? <laughs> well, <laughs> right, right. Anyway, we digress. Sorry, folks. <laughs> but depending on who you listen to, and uh, there's, there's a couple differing opinions, but according to the notes that... Dave Meltzer had on Vader. Shawn Michaels basically nixed the program with Vader, and it very well may have been for the same reasons with with Hogan. I mean, uh, I I love Shawn Michaels. He is legitimately one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, but I have a feeling Shawn probably wouldn't last too long in a shoot. No. How many... I mean, of course, depends on who you talk to. It was one to five Marines whooped his butt that one night when he lost his smile and got the concussions, remember? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now, when he came in, you remember Vader came in, and I, I actually went back and listened to Conrad Thompson and Bruce Pritchard's uh, whole episode where they talked about Vader's run in WWF. Um, I just talked about, you know, with some of the things going on in the fight with Paul Orndorff. He was breaking down. Like you say, he's 40 years old. We've been talking about he's been wrestling for 10 years as a very large man doing a lot of high-risk stuff, they knew when they hired him he needed surgery. Um, we didn't mention earlier, this wouldn't be, we didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, the fallout of the eye incident with Hanson, you know, five, six years earlier, required him to have surgery. He, has a, he had a steel plate put in by his eye socket to help hold his eye into the rest. So if you go back and watch later Vader, you'll notice one of his eyes is a little crooked compared to what it was earlier. And that's why, you know. Um, I think this was either knee or back surgery. I think it was back surgery he had to have. And they knew that, that Vader was going to need this surgery when they hired him, but he had enough in the tank, he felt and they felt, to do the Royal Rumble you're talking about and then the, uh, the, the whole angle 
where he injured Gorilla Monsoon, which, by the way, I think was one of the best angles ever done with Vader in particular, but on WWF during that era. Uh, I think everybody knows about – I can't remember what, what, what led to it, but he was going to suspend Vader or something to Vader, and Vader, Vader bombed him in the corner. And, you know, um, one of the more effective uses, I think, of an of, of a, um, authority figure at the time. Because everybody knew that Gorilla was a badass wrestler in his day, you know, and to injure him like that was awesome. And Gorilla sold it like crazy. And Cornette's talked about this, too, because, of course, Cornette, he was part of, of Cornette's, uh, when he brought in, was part of Cornette's group. Uh, Cornette was his, was his mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Go from Harley Race to Jim Cornette as your manager, now I think about it, you know? <laughs> That's kind of not, impressive, but anyway. Not bad at all. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was part of it. A lot of it was Sean balking on it, but a lot of it was they knew he had to have time off to have this back surgery. That was pre-planned and agreed upon when they brought him in, which, once again, when you think about the style he wrestled, the size he was for the last 10 years. Are you shocked he needed surgery? No. Um, but Sean did balk on a working on I think it's universally accepted and shown that the matches they did have when he came back from the surgery uh, were some of the worst examples of a world champion being unprofessional in the middle of a match on a pay-per-view. There's the famous one where you can see Sean literally crying like a baby and whining and, and shouting at Vader. Uh, I'm sure you know the match I'm talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. this would have um, been uh, I think Vader, late summer, I want to say. Like like 95, I want to say somewhere in there, yeah. And it was something where, where Vader stepped on his hair by accident and Sean threw a temper tantrum, and I'm sitting there. you know. And by, and, and by Sean's, and in Sean's defense, yes, he's one of the greatest of all time, Sean will be the first to tell you he was a complete jackass at that era, at that time in his life, and he was very hard to deal with professionally, you know? And that he, and that he openly has admitted he probably didn't give Vader the shake he should have. And even with that all being said, I still thought the matches Sean and Vader had were really good matches. It's two great athletes who can go, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's sad. I think when you, when, as, we start, as we talk about his WWF careers, we're winding up here, a lot of people don't remember him as fondly for that. And, and I, I always say, the guy was 40 years old and broke down. Cut him some slack. He was still better than 90% of the other guys they had on the card at the time, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, while he um, didn't win the WWF title in that two-year stint or so that he had working for Vince McMahon, he did have some high-profile feuds. Uh, he had a run against Undertaker, and uh, right. I, I believe he also had a run with... Kane, didn't uh, he? Yeah, and I think he had a feud with Foley as well. Uh, and he did. yeah, and, uh, I think around 98 or so he had a run, uh, opposite Mark Henry, of course, at the fully loaded pay-per-view, which maybe everybody really only remembers because, you know, Sable took her top off in that, but I digress. Right. The feud I remember from this era was he had a pretty good one with Ken Shamrock. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember it now. I didn't, I didn't remember it until you mentioned it, but now I remember it. And the thing about it was it made sense. Vader was perceived and presented as a legit badass, and everybody knew Ken Shanrock was a legit badass. So it kind of made, and that was, you know, I, I, I think Ken was underused by the WWE, but at the same time, you know, he may be mad at me. Ken's not the, not the brightest crayon in the box. I don't know what, what you could fully get out of him, but he does look like a million bucks, and he, and he did believe he was a badass. So it just makes sense to put two guys on a trajectory like this. And if you weren't watching wrestling back then, Ken Shamrock was very over as a babyface in that era. At least I thought he was, didn't you? I think so, too, as well, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it made sense. And I thought that was a better matchup than Sean because here was the guy that was received. And, you know, Ken didn't care about, about, about a guy working stiff with him. He worked stiff right back. 
So, you know, and same thing with Taker and Kane. Same thing with, with I mean, Mick and him. Well, every time him and Mick locked up, it was magic. We know that. They just had chemistry. So, Shawn Michaels, I understand the reason for putting him in that feud because of, of what you what you're paying the guy and what, what he's perceived at by the fans that probably was ill-conceived when you consider the personalities at the time and the physical and mental state of both, both participants. But all the other feuds I thought were, were good, good marriages, you know? Mm-hmm. But Vader's run in, in WWE uh, came to an end uh, during the Attitude Era, late 1998, and the following now, year... Now, now during, the, during that run, at what point did he have the controversy over in Kuwait where he... That, I mean, that was a big freaking deal. I remember that. Was that like 97, maybe 96? Yeah, I remember it too. Yeah, I believe it was in the late 90s. And I think he was detained for a while over there, if I recall correctly. He was. He was. He was. Yeah, it was, it, there was essentially, for those who don't know what we're talking about, uh, they were over there on a Middle Eastern tour, the WWE, that is, WWF at the time. And they, and they had Good Morning Kuwait, which was, you know, their morning news program. And they had Undertaker and him on, on his guest. And the, the, the host was a, a smaller Kuwaiti man who did the same, made the same mistake John Stossel made to David Schultz about 15 years earlier. <laughs> that's, am, I, am I remembering it correctly? Where he essentially said, you know, wrestling looked fake, and Undertaker was just kind of cool and calm about it, but, but Vader lost his crap. <laughs> and didn't he slap him, I think, wasn't it what he did? Yeah, or uh, headlocked or choked him or something like that. But the whole point is he said something like, does this look fake? Does this feel fake? Or something like that example. Some, some, something somebody would have done back in the territory days, really. Right, exactly. And once again, if you, if you think about what we talked about before this incident, the frustration of Sean not wor- wanting to work with him, all the crap that happened at WCW, his body's breaking down, the stuff at home, you can see why a guy reacted like that, you know? Um, and... It happened, and it was an international incident because you got to understand this is Kuwait. This is not that far removed from the Kuwaiti War. Um, he was detained. Uh, Bruce Bruce Pritchard talks about that whole incident at length on that Vader episode I'm talking about. He did on his podcast where they had to send lawyers over, and it was scary. I mean, I think he he, he, he if you want to see the actual incident itself, it's readily available on YouTube. Just put in you know Vader Kuwaiti Kuwait incident, and it'll come up there. And I don't know what's more funny, Vader losing his crap, the look of sheer terror on the little guy's face when he realized he said this to the wrong guy, or Undertaker sitting there not doing anything, trying not to laugh as it happens. All three of them are priceless, in my opinion. You know, Undertaker's got his shades on, he's sitting there. And I, and I, I mean, I was just wishing there was a thought bubble over Undertaker's head going, what a dumb idiot. That guy won't ask that question again. <laughs> you know, something along those lines, but anyway. It was, it was, I don't think that he got in any trouble over that. I mean, I think he got maybe fined, but that wasn't the reason he got fired by the WWF. You know, I mean, look, Vince, like the Vince dealt with us before 15 years earlier when Stossel asked, asked David Schultz, which for, you know, off, off, off topic, if any of you listeners kind of want to know uh, how, the mindset of the crazy train, I watch that clip at least once a week just to get a laugh. That's my form of humor, it's just to watch John Stossel get the crap slapped out of my nature. That's a weekly comedic event for me. It's like, you know, you get about Wednesday or Thursday in your work week and you need a little pickup. I just pop that onto my YouTube. I got it saved as one of my favorites on you, my YouTube, and watch it and, and laugh hard that I cry, and then I can go home with my day and my week feels much better. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I was open hand slap. Are you a, yeah. are you open hand slap? Are you his own fake to you? 
I might add the Vader one to it now, too, because they're about the same, so it might go into the rotation. But after the run in WWF in the Attitude Era, Vader once again returns to Japan, and this is really where his last big money run is, and that is working for Giant Baba and All Japan, which is his first run in All Japan, and he wins the All Japan Triple Crown a couple of times over there as well, and... Like I said, I think this was really his last main event run because WWE really didn't treat him that well. And by this time, WCW was losing the Monday Night War, and I'm not sure how good bringing him back in would have felt. And we already had people like Steve Austin and The Rock and uh, Goldberg Goldberg. was really hitting on. uh, Would they really bring back Vader you know, for the, for the nostalgia. Now, I know WCW brought in a lot of guys from the past in those days, but I think it goes back to talking about the, the UWFI run. He probably went back to Japan where he knew he would probably get at least treated with respect. Right. And I also think, you know, in defense of WCW, there wasn't a whole lot to defend in that era, let's be honest. What's the point of bringing them back? I mean, where if you look at, the, at the, what the state of WCW was at the time with the NWO and its fractioning off the 5 million things and the cruiserweight, and, you know, Goldberg, Karen's everybody. Where did Vader and a character like Vader fit into that picture? Not anywhere. I, and I, I mean, I, I understand. I think when I book shows, I'm a good booker. But I also know that my, my philosophy of booking is not the only way to book. There are other, but I'm thinking as a booker, I don't know where I'd put him in. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't, know, I don't right. see. I'm, I'm sitting there trying to put my booker hat on and look at it at, at the time frame. Where does he fit in? I mean, you don't want to bring in a talent that's going to cost you that much money uh, who – if passes prime can't produce and doesn't really fit in anywhere in the first place. It's just, that's it's, I've heard that argument for, well, WCW should have brought him back. Give me a reason what, where they could book him into where any of that would fit. Hogan's not going to work with him. You don't want to, you don't want to kill Goldberg. Nash and Hall aren't going to work with him. Who's, who's left? And he's not going to be a mid card guy. He's a main event guy. So where do you put him? In the main event where guys like where once again, Hulk Hogan is at. So. Right. And I, and when I bring up all these points, people, they're like, Oh, maybe you got a point. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, when he was when he was because we didn't bring this up yet, and I think this is one of the most impressive things in his career. When he went back to all when he went back to Japan, went to all Japan in his final run here in the late nineties. Baba was completely out of the ring by then, but at some point in his career, he pinned Baba too, didn't he? That would have had to have been very late in his career because Baba passed. I think the following year, I think he passed in nineteen ninety nine. So I don't think he wrestled Baba on this run. He must have wrestled Baba on his first run in Japan before. You know, the one where the famous. So when you put that in perspective, he was an American who pinned both Inoki and Baba in Japan. That's, I, I, that would be like, it's even more impressive than Jericho beating, beating The Rock and also on the same night for the world title. It really is. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong in feeling that way? No, it would be along the lines of beating Hogan and say maybe, well, Dusty might not be the best example because Dusty did lose a lot of high-profile matches, but... You know, player he, in the mid like eighty five. Yeah, yeah, and, and and cleanly for that matter. Uh, but yeah, he he beat the two top legends in Japan. Yeah, my my analogy is is it would be like nineteen seventy in the United States, and you go into Madison Square Garden and beating Bruno Clean in Madison Square Garden, and then go into Tampa and beating you know Dory or Jack Brisk, Dory Funk Jr. or Jack Briscoe Clean in, in the in the Armory down in Tampa. It's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 legend. I mean, yeah. It's let's 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 not mince words here. 
we can throw an eye on all the names we want of North American, you know, legends of Flair, the Dusties and Lawler and, and Hogan and Bruno, all that. At the end of the day, all of them pale in comparison to what Baba and, and Inoki mean to wrestling in Japan. The only guy who's bigger than them is the guy who started them, Ricky Dozen. Those are the, those are the three top names in Japanese wrestling, and none of them have wrestled in 20 years, and they're still the top names in Japanese wrestling. <laughs> so what does that tell you? And he beat right. two of them clean. And probably the only reason he didn't beat Ricky Dozen clean was because Ricky Dozen was dead by then. Right. Yeah. So after the run in All Japan, this really was the twilight of Vader's career. He made appearances here and there. Uh, I, I popped in on the national scene. He made a couple appearances for TNA in the weekly pay-per-view days. And he made some nostalgia appearances for WWE. But this really was the end of Vader's regular wrestling career i mean you know as far as doing regular dates and such i mean I, i'm sure he did stuff on the indies but at least as far as prominence we're we're coming to the end here now that he would be about uh 45 years old pushing pushing 50 again you're talking to health issues and such and uh anything that you would want to uh wind up with at least as far as uh the the twilight of Vader's career you know i i, I don't know uh i mean i know he got really involved with his son his son now is the son now. I, I don't know if he's graduated or not, but he's played football at center, just like his dad. One of the top, like the top center in the country by most recruiting things. So I think this is the time to do like a lot of guys did the business. He just slowed down and started focusing on his family he had been away with for so long and and helped his son. There's a great picture I saw online and a tribute to him uh, earlier this week, right after he passed. The picture of him sitting on the sidelines with his son during a football game, and his son's in his uniform and and you know. Uh, they're talking. And I mean, it's like, that's just, that's the man, not that's the wrestler of the public persona we see. So that was kind of cool. You know, um, I, he, he stayed married to the same woman, I think his entire career, which if you know anything about the wrestling business is a miracle in and of itself. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think I need to tell anybody that. How many times has Ric Flair been married? How many mm -hmm. times has Jerry Lawler been married? Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're two of the worst examples I know, but you get the point. Right. Austin's running, 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 running a close third behind the two of them at this point. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I think most recently what uh, Vader was had the most notoriety for, at least caused the controversy. Was it? Go it's going back to that aforementioned Ricochet Will Osprey match. He had said some stuff about Twitter, and it led to him having a match with Will Osprey in Europe. I think that's really the highest profile thing he did, right? Uh, in you know, in the, the his final in his final days or final years. Yeah, and I don't know if that was a work that turned into a shoot or a shoot that turned into a work, if it was pre-planned or it just, you know, kind of went that way. Uh, I know he caught a lot of flat from a lot of, a lot of the more modern fans, but you have to understand, Vader was not a guy who couldn't do a lot of what Will, what Will Ospreay did and what Ricochet did. And he's 250 pounds bigger than them, you know? And I think that a lot of people over jumped over when you talk about the end of Vader's career and what we all talked about and so many missed opportunities because of the, of the hold that has been taken on his body, did any of you ever stop to think that maybe some of the things he was saying was a, a veteran's way of, once again, like Stan steering him the right way and his or first kids, try something different, don't be like me. Did any of them ever stop to think about that? I think that, you know, I would rather remember Vader for the, you know, the, 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 the multiple world titles on multiple continents the most effective monster heel I have seen in wrestling since that time, that great run in WCW, you know, uh, where he legitimately was the scariest man on the planet. 
the cool, you know, helmet. That's what I want to remember, and I hope fans will go back and, and remember that and find it, not this whole little Twitter war we have with Will Ospreay. I, I think that's so insignificant when you, when you look at the vast legacy that this man left. Like you said, without a question, probably the greatest super heavyweight of all time, definitely the most athletic super heavyweight of all time. And I, that includes guys like Bam Bam and Kane and Undertaker, who all are legitimately phenomenal athletes for guys over 300 pounds. Uh, but I don't think any of them are close. Maybe Bam Bam, and he's the closest, and he's still a distant second. Just the absolute most athletic guy ever. Um, I don't think you should judge him on the fight with Paul Orndorff. I think that's unfair, too. For God's sakes, the man had his eyeball popped out of its socket in a match, popped it back in, and went 20 more minutes. And that's what you need to be remembering. Not all this other stuff. Anything yeah. you'd like to add, Seth? Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And as a lot of fans know, he was diagnosed with uh, congestive heart uh, issues a couple years back. He was given two years? years to live. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was late 2016 that that happened. Uh, I think that would have been about the time of the the Will Osprey incident. But yeah, he didn't quite make it two years. Uh, passed away. He was. In the hospital, according to his son and family, for about a month uh, with pneumonia, but right. it was that uh, ailment that effectively was too much for his heart to take, and you know, he you know, he passed away this week at the age of 63. Now, he did mention, uh, between the time he went public with the congestive heart failure and his passing, he had kind of jumped to, to, to he, he lamented the fact he had been, he had said that so publicly, so early after the diagnosis, because he was able to get some experts help and he was, he was improving until this, this bout of pneumonia that took his life. So I, I, I I'm sad. I'm not surprised he, he passed away, but I was kind of hoping he was going to kick out because it looked like mid 2017, he probably was going to, but is so often in cases uh, where people who have weaker hearts or other organs who are trying to recover from those, those long-term injuries, something simple like pneumonia just gets a hold of them and it, their bodies are just too weak to handle it. You know, uh, it's sad, but it's not uncommon. And that seems to be what happened to, to Leon. So, you know, obviously, I think, um, obviously, if you listen to this for the last hour and a half, two hours, you can tell that both me and Zandrax were huge fans of Vader. A lot of respect. Um, I, like I said, we gave you a lot of matches you can go back and look at. I personally, you know, rest in peace, brother. You helped inspire me to be a wrestler. And I think you would echo my sentiments. Condolences to, to his family, to his wife and his son, Jesse, and and, you know, hope that you find some strength through this troubling time. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. Uh, thoughts, prayers, uh, condolences, well wishes. And, you know, I, I want to publicly thank Vader for the memories. As I said before, it was that Vader sting feud that was the fish hook to the lip, so to speak, that actually truly drew me in as a WCW fan. And if any of our listeners uh, have stories they want to share about Vader, we do have a couple of ways you can do so. The website is classicwrestlingmemories.com. We also have our message board at behindthesquaredcircle.com. Uh, the Twitter is TWBP Show on Twitter, and we're also on Facebook as well uh, with, with the Behind the Squared Circle. And Train, if anybody wants to hit you up with Vader or anything else, wrestling or non-wrestling, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, they can always reach me on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. And I am working on a couple of playlists on Spotify. When I get them up, I'll give you all the information. 
and I would encourage you to look up my playlist and follow them so you can kind of get an insight into the kind of music that makes Crazy Train tick, too. So, um, anyway, more information to come on that. But until then, always contribute me on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. And with that, we're going to wrap things up here on Classic Wrestling Memories. I want to remind you that we are on Apple Podcasts or iTunes if you listen on your computer. Just about anywhere you can get a podcast, this show is available with a search. And we ask that you do subscribe. We're getting a lot of subscribers, uh, a little bit every day, it seems, a little bit every week. And definitely write us a review because I love hearing reviews. Uh, the only thing I ask is just be honest. You know, even if there's something that you think we could improve about the show, I'm all ears. Give us a review uh, on the podcast player of your choice. And with that, we are going to turn out the lights here in the Classic Wrestling Memory Studio. And we will talk to you folks again uh, with more memories. And we do genuinely hope you drop us a line and let us know what you think. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners. All rights reserved.